Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Glenn Matheson, creator of buildingcodecollege.com, likes to talk, and I have to say I was a little nervous about our BuildCast conversation. Glenn began his construction career as a carpenter's apprentice, then began to frame houses, and later started his own remodeling and deck building company. In 2005, he became a building, plumbing, and mechanical inspector for the city of Westminster, Colorado. Over the next 13 years, he was a field inspector, a plan reviewer, and ultimately earned the Master Code Professional Certification. In 2018, Glenn took a leap to pursue code education full-time through buildingcodecollege.com. Along the way, Glenn has honed his teaching style and views on codes and their place in the governance of construction of buildings. So why was I nervous? Glenn has some deeply felt beliefs and I was uncertain how much they aligned with my own. I discovered that I think we are pretty much aligned. We're on the same page. Let's see what you think, and I hope you enjoy this listen of the BuildCast. Hey, welcome to the BuildCast. I'm here with Glenn Matheson, uh, who is the creator of buildingcodecollege.com. Glenn, how are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to be online here with you today. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on board. Um, I have been kind of in this parallel path, I think, with you in uh, getting involved in codes and uh, getting involved with code com uh, compliance, but also code development on, on a national level. Uh, I was reading recently that you started uh, doing some code development in 2015, which was the cycle that I, I got involved in as well. Uh, how did How did you... Um, what was your pathway to codes and how did you get started in construction? So I started in construction as a 19 year old laborer. Um, I had grown up, I'm sort of the black sheep of my family that didn't go to college. My father was a professor. My sister, older sister was going to college following his footsteps. And I was in Texas and finished high school and said, I'm going to Colorado. So yeah. I went to Colorado and started as a laborer and just worked my way up through, uh, you know, the, the path in construction uh, became a framer and did uh, frame some homes, uh, two homes on like a two man crew and uh, was doing decks for the home builder and really enjoyed the decks because you could do you got to do from from concrete work all the way to finish work. So every day was kind of was kind of new. You, had, you got to do a lot of different kind of stuff. Uh, and so I started my own deck construction and remodeling company, did that from about about 1999, 98 um, to 2005. And at that point I started having kids and I never really made it to like a businessman level. I was still doing the sales calls in the evening and doing the takeoffs and I was the lead carpenter. I had a couple guys working for me, but it, it wasn't conducive to, to becoming a family man. So um, that's really what led me to decide, you know, I need to get um, a more, 40 hour a week kind of job, something where I could focus more on the family. And um, that led me to working for the city of Westminster uh, back in 2005. Yeah. 
uh dave horst is the current uh chief building official there was he uh your mentor as well yep yep dave horst was the was the ce uh, the cbo when i got hired on um he wasn't actually even in my interview it was the the inspection supervisor and then one of the lead inspectors so um dave set up an amazing um department with tons of support and tons of educational support but definitely the senior uh, staff members there were were certainly part of that mentorship you know yeah. all set up through through kind of the good um uh, department the good staff the good gang that that dave put together yeah so i'm i'm guessing that a lot of people or some people that listen to this uh podcast are are in the trades currently and it seems like the trades are a great pathway into the code realm and working in the code realm. Um, do you have any recommendations for people uh, if they were wanting to get out of uh, the more physical side of construction and into uh, code code compliance type work? Yeah, I would I would certainly encourage it um, for a number of reasons. One, I mean, I always will miss building and and having spent that time in the trades. I mean, that'd be the first advice I give to, that's what I give to my to my kids, because you're learning a skill for yourself that, that you can utilize anywhere, uh, you know, and always make you available. So I love those times I spent as a tradesperson. It gave me the skills to be able to build my own stuff at my house. And that's something I'll always own for myself. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of blossom on from that. I definitely didn't want to wear tool bags and, you know, into my later years of life. Going to be an inspector and going into code compliance, I really think was one of the one of the greatest decisions I made. I thought I knew a lot about construction after my what seven years or so in the trades. I had no idea what I what I had yet to learn because I was only on my job sites, and that was the the greatest thing I, I think about being an inspector is it's like a VIP pass to every job site in town. I mean, even if you don't have an inspection scheduled and you just see something curious that you wanna go check out, you kinda have a pass to pretty much go where you want. Um, and I've always had a very open-minded, very, very interested character. I like learning, I like seeing new things, I like being challenged. And so mm -hmm. it was really fun to go and see all those different job sites. The advice that I would give if someone already had it in their mind that they wanted to go that way, the, the first and foremost thing is there's a lot of ways to do things and the way that you've been doing it might be great for you but when you move to being an, an inspector you have to separate your opinions about things a little bit i mean there's interpretation and uh, in opinions and how you interpret code and i don't mean that but we've all heard the line you know the inspector that says like well i wouldn't have done it that way well you keep your mouth shut like that's not a place for an inspector to say that unless it's in a in a helpful, suggestive kind of way where you're just going, hey, here's another idea. Um, but that mm -hmm. was one of the that's one of the biggest things that folks need to learn when they're coming from the trades to inspection is there's a lot more ways to do things than the way you necessarily did it. Yeah. So I'm guessing what you're kind of saying is that there's not necessarily a right or wrong way. Uh, I mean, there's a compliant way. Um, yeah, and I mean, for, so how does compliance different than right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, 
even with code compliance, so many people look at the code as it's nothing but a book full of restrictions and full of rules. But that's that's far from the truth. The International Residential Code, at least in the building chapters of it, um, so much more of that are options and choices. Like I, I do a class, I talk about headers, uh, like window openings, a header over a window opening. I can show you 10 different ways that are all code compliant to build a header. They're taking the same loads in the same opening in the same window, and you got 10 different ways you could do something. And yeah. so that's where people don't often realize how much choice there is. Now, obviously, you get into like chapter three and you've got geometrical mandatories. Like chapter three is the most mandatory chapter. And so your rise and run limitations on your stair geometry, for example, that's going to be pretty standardized. But how you actually build the stairs, well, the code isn't just giving you one way or the highway. Uh, and so that that would really be kind of, I guess, what I'm saying. And the processes and the pathways there. You know, a lot of times inspectors ha sometimes can be a little um, strong in their opinion of the construction process. And it really, you know, an inspector should you should if you're going into the business as being an inspector, you should you should say I'm going into the business of community service. That's what I'm doing. I'm not the boss of my community. I'm the servant to my community. And so, you know, being able to be open-minded that way uh, as far as working with other professionals and realizing that they are the lead professionals, you are the third party coming in to, you know, oversee or assist, uh, but not to step on their toes and change their processes. Too many inspectors sometimes uh, tend to take that role, which really isn't theirs. Yeah. And so did somebody uh, kind of mentor this uh, philosophy to you or did, did you come up with that yourself? No, I mean, definitely, definitely mentored. I mean, my character, I'm sure has a little bit to do with it. I'm, I'm a big believer in personal responsibility. I'm a big believer in personal empowerment. You know, I believe that in a world where no government existed, we would still want professional construction people to know what they're doing. So I naturally look at the, the government role as a third party inspector or the role of government in any application as the additional, not the primary. And so part of it is my character, but then definitely one of the, one of the mentors, uh, Mike Jones, I'll give him credit for the, for the line. I have a lot of mentors, but the line that he taught me was rules without relationship result in rebellion. And, you know, that's the same as a parent. It's like, from parent to child or government to community, any position of authority, if you don't attempt to familiarize yourself with the subjects of your authority, they're not gonna trust you. And the greatest authority, the most effective authority is a trusted authority. Um, and so rules without relationship, without trust, without without saying, hey, I can, I get this guy, he's, he's real, he's legit. I believe what, he, what he's trying or she's trying to show me. So that was uh, some great advice I got. And then I'll, I'll have to give credit to Jerry George, rest in peace, Jerry, another wonderful mentor, sat in the back of one of my classes early on when I was just becoming a code instructor for the Colorado Chapter Institute. And he was in the back of my class and uh, breaking for lunch or whatever, he caught me and he said, Glenn, I notice you say enforce the code, enforce the code, enforce the code. Why you? Why do you have to force it? Why? Why don't you just administer the code? 
Why does your community need you to force on them? And that was one of the, another one of the just greatest lessons I'll carry with me the rest of my life is that if you're the community servant, what we do is we administer the codes to our community. They're the ones building it. They're the ones that need to choose what code to follow and you know which choices they have in the code. Our job is to assist them and simply be the administrators of it. And if we end up hitting a brick wall in politely and respectfully administering the code, then you can kick in enforcement time. But that changed everything for me. Um, even when I, you know, cause I was teaching when I was still an active building authority. So I took that lesson, not only in my classes, but in my own character and my, my own behaviors with my community is yeah, Glenn, like why force is such a negative word. Uh, yeah. And so those, those are two just amazing bits of advice. Yeah. So just uh, to riff on that for a second, um, if there are requirements that aren't being met in a home that are in the code, um, are you how how do you not enforce them, or how do you how do you ensure that they're they're going to take place or happen in that home? But I verify I willful not compliance. I'm sorry. Verify willful compliance. See, okay. sometimes if you just, if, if people learn the code and then they understand the code, then you don't have to force anything. Like, let's say, let's say I'm the inspector to a, a contractor that knows everything, knows every code in the book, top level contractor, has looked over the local amendments, knows it all. What do I have to force? Nothing. I show up yeah. and I am a third party verifier. I got your back. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, buddy, this is kind of complicated i got your back here just like i would tell my teenage sons and my young adult sons like go champion the world go fail go make mistakes i got your back i'm not going to lead you i'm going to be behind you and that's where the government should be behind us so my expectations of personal and professional responsibility is to first i i, I conduct myself in the way i believe things should be and so I believe that we should be working with contractors that are professionals that know the code, that understand it. That responsibility is theirs, not mine to force anything upon them. I show up with an expectation. Hey, you should already know what you're doing. Let me just have your back and verify it for you. Oh, hey, this doesn't quite look correct. Here's how it should be. Here's what the code would require. I haven't forced anything. I'm administering. I'm saying, hey, here's this book we've adopted. Oh, we made an amendment to that that you may not have known. No force required. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get willful compliance. Now you show up next time. They didn't complete all the items on the list. You fail the inspection. I, you I guess at that point you could say it's now you forced my hand. You know, I've had to turn you down. But that's the last goal if that's happened the contractor in a way has already failed their responsibility and like i say that's when you have to put on the enforcer hat but i mean mm -hmm. when i was working with a contract i make it clear like look i don't want to be that guy i'm here to have your back you be a pro and i won't have to force anything on you i'll mm -hmm. share with you i'll talk with you i'll explain to you that's what led me into teaching ultimately is i was a teacher when i was an inspector it was just it was reactive education. It wasn't proactive. 
Uh, and that was what really led me to go, I can do a better job, I think, helping administer the code by teaching folks all across the country as opposed to just, you know, being that force in one local jurisdiction. Yeah. So you don't have to go through a house and, and always say it, you missed this, this, and this. Hopefully they proactively have learned that. And again, you're just verifying what, what's, what should be there, I guess. Yeah. And it really, it's a lot of, it's just wordplay. I mean, yeah. you could say I'm still, if I'm showing up and I'm doing an inspection, I'm turning down things, I'm enforcing the code. But yeah. again, it's just such a negative word when you when you yeah. stop and think about force. Whereas if you can enlighten somebody and lift their professionalism by helping them understand, wow, that does make sense why I needed yeah. to do this X, Y, Z way, I'm going to do that. You know, I like... Mm. I remember memorably the one inspection and they had put the steel beam in, in the wrong floor. I mean, there's a number, this is just the one that came to mind. They put the steel beam in the wrong place of the floor and this massive three-ply girder truss with a center point bearing load had a post coming down to nothing. And this was a rough framing. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, the contractor is thanking you for having their back. I didn't have yeah. to force them to move the steel beam. I pointed it out and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the framers did that. Thank yeah. you. Like yeah. that's how the relationship should be. And so that's the way I conduct my behavior. And that's the way I, I speak in the kind of language to set that expectation. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that it's basically a, a philosophy of implementation that is more engaging uh than just always going out there and, and in essence giving a ticket to say yeah. you've done this wrong you've done this wrong yeah and if people don't like yeah exactly and if people don't understand why they're why they're asked to do something by the code they tend not to do it because they just they don't see the rationale for it and and as through your educational inspection ability as as a good inspector uh, asking questions, I think you can help, like you said, educate them uh, so they understand the why behind the yeah. the, the requirement. Um, the most alienating thing that that a building authority could say to their community is because the code says so. Yeah. Like that is just absolutely the worst. I mean, even as a parent with my kids, I didn't tell them that because I said so. Now, if there's, I mean, my kids were were raised that's slightly different. You are dealing with children don't question what I'm saying until after you've done what I say. Like if you're playing in the middle of the road and I tell you, get yeah. out of the road, you do yeah. what I say. But then my kids we, were open to come and say, what's up with that, dad? Why did I have to do that? Why and it's like, I play in the middle of the street. You. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. teaching, you know? And so I just can't stand the lot, you know, a lot. Um, there are some inspectors, the industry will do it to you. Unfortunately, the public rolling out the red carpet brown nosing the inspector, do whatever the inspector says so we can pass inspection. Unfortunately, that practice creates the monsters, so so to speak. Mm -hmm. They yeah. create those inspectors that start to get a chip on their shoulder because the public treats them like they're the gods. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I talk to contractor and I say, I get it, that's a business decision. If you're dealing with an inspector that is just, one of those kind of people, maybe you just keep your mouth shut, you do whatever they say, you roll your eyes and you move on to the next job. 
But that's now a business decision. That's not a professional construction worker decision. Sometimes the business decision is no, you should stand proud of what you understand or stand proud as a professional and respectfully have dialogue with your inspector or your government authorities saying, hey, um, X, Y, Z, here are my, you know, my thoughts on this. Uh, so yeah. it's a two-way street. When I, I, you know, my first years, my first five years as an inspector, I definitely admit I, I started to fall into that pattern a little bit of all contractors are just stupid. They don't know anything. I got to come out there. Can't believe they didn't do any of this right. Um, and, you know, luckily I had some things come up that, that kind of broke me out of that. Um, but, but that's what can happen if people just tell you you're right all the time. If everyone yeah. kisses your butt all the time, you know, yeah. you don't want to do that to your inspectors. You know, I've, I've never worked for a jurisdiction, but if um, contractors have complaints about inspectors is there a process for them to vet that and to to uh, try and get a, a basically a different type of inspection an inspection that that i think follows your line of thought of uh, educating as yeah. well as enforcing it that's a tough question because i mean yes i would expect any government department or service or function to have a system of checks and balances, to have in high, a hierarchy of, of uh, authority. And so uh, certainly every inspector has a boss that they're accountable to. And that boss is, you know, usually like the chief building official, and they're going to be accountable to the city manager or the, or the director of public works or whatever. And, and the further you go from that individual inspector and further you go up the chain, the more accountable to the community as a whole you become. You know, the the it's very easy as an inspector face to face with one contractor to be a little heavy handed and get what you want. But the city manager is going to be taking a different approach. If something works his way all the way up to them, they're going to ask, why is our why are our citizens complaining about our building department? And yeah. so there's always that path. And I, I'm sure every building authority in the in the country has some sort of path like that. But here's the deal. That's where I say it's a business decision because, I mean, I wish it wasn't true, but the fact is we're human. Humans, you know, sometimes we have uh, vendettas. Sometimes we don't like someone telling our boss we didn't do the job right. And unfortunately, yeah. in a position of authority, there are characters in the code industry that will inappropriately um seek retribution against a contractor that dare challenge what they say and i'm just saying it as true as it is we all know those characters are out there and yeah. i tell contractors if, if you've interfaced with one of those characters you have to make a business decision that's why i say the business decision to say just do what they say and you know they're a joke and carry on as a professional or no this is serious enough i'm going to call this inspector out on it um, but the very first thing would be is to attempt the person-to-person -person discussion. Yeah. Just talking to your inspector. Stand, you know, sometimes I, the truth of the matter is, it's, I hate to say it like this, but think, what was the advice we got in school about bullies? Stand up to them. A lot of bullies are bullies simply because nobody stands up to them. And some inspect, I mean, some people in a position of authority are simply bullies. And sometimes all it takes is a little standing up and they'll stop and go, oh, 
okay, wait a minute. And sometimes you can find them backtracking pretty quickly because they realize, oh, this is gonna be a little more difficult of an inspection here. Um, so, I mean, the first yeah. thing is just working with people just as people. Uh, but if you've hit that inspector that's just a bully and you've made the business decision that you're not gonna tolerate it anymore, then I would certainly say you're you're within your rights as a citizen in your community to go up to the next level, to the building official first, respectfully, calmly, and maturely, and discuss the situation um, yeah, and try to yeah. not make it personal. Yeah. So I think we have a pretty good idea, uh, your inspection side. Uh, you moved from inspections to code development. Uh, what was that like and what kind of took you into code development? Sure. Well, it was decks. So I, you know, I was a deck builder uh, before I became a, a building inspector and became a building inspector in 2005. And uh, I realized within a couple of years, the inspectors didn't understand decks and decks builders didn't understand code. And here I had been in both positions and I thought I could become a bridge. So I started writing about deck codes in 2007. At that time, there really weren't any codes for decks in the IRC. It was, it's, we had, you had to do a lot of like stretching to try to apply things to decks. Um, 2009 came along, we got this lateral load anchor, uh, pretty controversial uh, code and some controversial way it got into the code. And then 2012 came along and, and kind of further complicated the ledger bolting schedule, uh, merging sort of a tested code provision with now engineering and the and the blend of that just kind of poor and uh, so again, this is being the, uh, sort of the deck representative and 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 working with the north american deck and railing association at that time uh, i had written my book for icc so decks were certainly on my radar and something i was becoming sort of a recognized expert in and it was that that really prompted um uh, with the support of the north american deck and railing association I've been supporting that industry for that that association for decades, uh, trying to raise the professionalism of the deck industry, and uh, basically just re just saying, hey, look, you know, we need to be a voice for deck codes, a positive and proactive voice. Other people are working on deck codes, but they're not from the deck industry. Uh, so NADRA helped support me to uh, develop some proposals and um, attend the hearings, and I've done that with their support through uh, through the 24 IRC now. And so you're helping to formulate the, in essence, the rules for how to build a deck. Um, how do you feel? <laughs> you you don't agree with that, so let, let's go well, with that. So how, yeah, how would you? Well, how would so you, you say said it? rules, and so yeah. no, because this is chapter five. So the rule, okay. the mandatory in the IRC is all structures have to resist the loads placed on them safely and transmit the loads to the earth within deflection limits. That's it, that's what's mandatory. That's the big bad government okay. forcing compliance upon you. Okay, how do you wanna do that? You can get an engineer. I mean, have you seen the Denver Art Museum? Like we can build, have you seen skyscrapers? You know, like yeah. we can obviously build some amazing structures with engineering. So you, we could always build a deck with engineering. What I'm was working on is in chapter five, section 507. So now we're into the prescriptive design chapters. So when you said rules, you saw my face kind of go perk because yeah. 
I'm not helping create rules for decks. I'm helping create a recipe for building decks so that the free American public doesn't have to go pay an engineer for a personalized custom private validation that the loads will all transmit safely to the earth. They can also just open this great cookbook called the IRC, packed full of recipes for building a house, and there's gonna be a recipe now for building a deck. Now, yeah. it's gonna be like green bean casserole. It's gonna be a basic deck, a basic recipe yeah. kind of deck. And then there's some variety in that recipe, right? There's a couple different ways you can do a couple things, um, but it's not a rule. None of that is mandatory unless the free American citizen chooses that to say, this is how I will validate the mandatory requirements that all my loads transfer to the earth. Once they choose that, then that recipe becomes what they've selected. Um, so again, like that's just back to the way I speak very carefully yeah. about the code. If you say rule, most people are immediately are gonna bring their defenses up. Oh, you're gonna yeah. tell me what to do. So that kind of language, I'm very careful to, to, to walk around. Yeah, and what you've described there is the prescriptive pathway or this prescriptive option there. But if you've, and like you said, if you choose that option, there is a specific, there are specific things you have to do in order to execute that option. There exactly. isn't a lot of choice or flexibility after you've made that first choice to follow the prescriptive pathway. Now um, we try to other, put as much choice in other, there as yeah. possible. You know, yeah. there's a, as much choice, and that's where it's all like anybody else. Maybe someone has another way we could attach a beam to a post. I like I've talked about this with deck builders. You know, right now the recipe requires direct bearing, so your beam would sit directly on a post. Okay, but that's just one recipe. We know that bolts work. So, so yeah. a lot of you know a lot of people side mount their bolt their their uh, joy their beams. They'll side mount it to a post, and people will say, "Oh, that's not code compliant." Mm, okay, it doesn't comply with the with the recipe for how to build a deck, recipe. but yeah. you can certainly side mount a bolt a, a beam to a post. Of course, you can. Like yeah. this is you have to get it. science. You just need you would have to get it engineered. It. Yeah. Exactly. So anybody else, I mean, we've I've considered it for the 27 is maybe we should just write a recipe for side mounted um, beams because a lot of people like to do that. Um, mm. And so so so, yeah, it's you know, I always I love the recipe analogy because it's the same way as let's say you have a recipe to, to make green bean casserole or something. Right. Or maybe something with chicken in it. Mm. OK, I've picked this recipe. If I don't follow that recipe and put the oven at the correct temperature, or I mix some other ingredient with the chicken, it's not gonna come out like the recipe planned for it to come out. You might have undercooked chicken. You might poison your family. It doesn't mean that that's the only way you can cook chicken, right? And so, yeah. like you said, once they pick that recipe, then you're held to it so that you actually do have a structure that will transfer all the loads to the ground within deflection limits. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, just to make take that analogy to the energy code kind of more my my world. Um, yeah, there's I think there's a, a large misunderstanding that uh, you have to do something in, in one particular way. And there that choice uh, that you're talking about, that flexibility that you're talking about, 
is uh, embodied in all the codes. Uh, it is. And people people need to be able to see that. I like I like this quote uh, by the Dalai Lama. I always I always use it uh, when I do trainings, and it, he says, uh, "You need to learn the rules so that you know how to break them properly." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, and, and it's just knowing what you can do. Like so many of the pub, so much of the public, they 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 learn code, air quotes, learn through an iter iterations of failed inspections. And it's not yeah. you're you're not actually learning all the choices and empowerment yes. that you have. You're simply learning the times you didn't do it right, but you're not even learning why. You're just learning that's not the right way. Yeah. Basically, what you're learning is all the times the code says shall be shall be shall be that's what the inspector is going to be that's the inspector's voice shall be but as many times as the code says shall be it also says shall be permitted yeah and though that's the free public and then there's the exception the exceptions that create the more specific cases exactly you get the general rule first but then you get all these exceptions going well if this and that then we can reduce these rules a little bit yeah or these yeah. you know these requirements but that's what's why it's so important that the public is proactive in learning the code and empowering themselves the professionals out there learning the code on their own terms not in a failed it not not by taking a series of exams and that now empowers them to be to, to understand the full um authority that they have in using yeah. the code yeah. You know, with energy code, I kind of, if I were to think of the cookbook analogy, it's like, you know how, like the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook, everyone's probably got to have a copy of that in their house, been around forever. Substitutions, right? You'll have yeah. a recipe, but then you can go to the front of the book and it'll have tons of substitutions. If you don't want to use butter, you can also use oil or whatever. And that's where yeah. I feel like the energy code kind of does that as well, where it's like, you know, if I was trying to come up with an analogy for like the UA trade-off approach or the performance yeah. approach, you know, it's kind of going, well, you said you were going to build green bean casserole, but as long as you, maybe it ends up being like, you got a little green corn beans. in it, it's a slightly <laughs> different dish, but no one's going to get food poisoning and everyone's going to have a full belly. That'll still work. And that, you know, yeah. that would be like the performance method, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, so I find in code development, um, the things that I've been approaching most often, the things that I've been working on are those things that I think are not clear, that are left up to too much interpretation and people in the field that are trying to use, use the code to build a, a good house. Um, have to interpret and and they sometimes interpret it correctly and sometimes are way off there uh which leads to this whole discussion about code language and i think the the biggest complaint that i get with the proposals that i've made is that i i don't write it in code language because code language doesn't work from my perspective uh in explaining what what the intent of of the of whatever requirement is uh what are, are are those the types of things that that you're focused on or or do you focus more on the recipe no absolutely i would say 50 50 if not 40 60 60 being clarifying proposals um with decks obviously 
I mean, we have a lot of recipes in the IRC for a whole lot of things already. There's so yeah. much choice, right? That there's not, I mean, there's not a ton more recipes to write, so to speak, I guess. I mean, I mean, I guess there are, but something like Dex is this major subject being built all across this country, and we had zero recipe in the IRC. So that was kind of a moment. You know, I would say the 15, 18, and 21 IRC, those three editions is when the recipe got built, the majority of it. Now we're left with kind of a few outlying things um, that need to be kind of written like for decks. So for me, I had a big, heavy period there kind of creating the recipes with others too, by the way. this was There was a whole collaboration of people that did this together because that's the only yeah. way code should be made is collaborative with other people and nobody should get everything they want yeah. uh, to side note. But I, I'm not, I just don't want to take all the credit for those codes. It's certainly not all me. A lot of wonderful, uh, diverse yes. groups of folks so. working together. But I definitely would say for the 24 IRC, um, more, I would say 60% or more of my proposals, I think I'd, I had about 27 proposals uh, were clarifiers. What I call them are the, the non-glamorous proposals. They're the ones that if someone like me or you or somebody like not really being paid, a lot of those proposals were ones I just did because I teach codes. And then I, I like yeah. you, I read a code and I'm like, this is really hard to make sense of. I go to all my history books, I do all the research and I find out that is just horribly written code. It does not at all say what it's supposed to say. And then I put a little note when I'm building my class and then those are the ones I go after. So typically that's how I kind of discover the ones that that aren't clear is when I'm trying to teach them and I can't consistently interpret it. I have to do all that research. Um, yeah. So yes, those are incredibly important and, and they're the most important because to be honest, I think if you know, you've attended the hearings, you've seen it, I'm not, I'm not demonizing this, but again, the majority of folks writing proposals a huge majority of them are industry folks. They have an interest. They want a recipe in the code. They want something in the code to help better represent the industry they work in. They're not as concerned necessarily with like how that end user is going to interpret it and is it get, is our inspectors going to be, you know, that that there's not a lot of return on your investment to fix those kind of problems in the code. So kudos yeah. to you that you're on the team that's trying to fix those things because they're they're very yeah. important. You too. Yeah. So um, you you alluded to uh, your history uh, uh, collection that's behind you. If, if people can't see, but behind Glenn is a, a huge bookcase that's full of uh, code books. Um, did you gain this interest in collecting uh, code books uh, because of your code development work, or what what got you into the kind of the historical side of codes? Yeah, yeah, teaching, teaching. Um, I just feel if I'm gonna teach codes, I need to not just, I'm not just a book reader. I'm not just someone that like, oh, I have this IRC. Oh, I can read this section. And then I can read this section out loud to a bunch of other people. I don't believe that that's teaching, um, yeah. not to the level that I wanna do it. So for me, you know, and that's why I only teach, for example, IRC. You know, I'm a master code professional. I do consulting in all the different codes. Um, but where I'm going to teach, I believe that takes a higher level of uh, expertise and understanding. And you have to be able to say more than just, well, that's because what the code says. And and even, you know, 
I just take that, I think, to the nth degree to say, I want to see where these provisions started. I want to see the evolution of them. Um, I myself just have an interest in history of all subjects because I just am a big believer that nothing around me today is would be here without yesterday and without the day before and the day before. Um, so I naturally have an interest in history, but it's really that it's teaching. Um, and I, I, I think it's kind of cool because I now throw in history little tidbits. I mean, I don't tell the historical story of every single code I teach, um, but I often know it because I've done my own research on them. But I love to put it into my classes because I also just think it makes it more interesting. And people yeah. will back to that trust thing. Like if you if you don't if you can actually show them the origin and show them the evolution and maybe how some things change and what we learned and how society changed and therefore the code changed with it, it's back to that building trust um, in in the yeah. code and and saying it and, and makes I it really believe why. Yeah, probably makes it a little more memorable for your students as well. Yeah, I um, hope so. I hope yeah. so. Um, but it's really we, neat. I mean, I got to say one thing is uh, once I became that, you know, real crazy about the history, it also just gives you a new perspective that, you know, a lot of this code, a lot of it's just made up. I mean, I, I don't mean it like <laughs> to dismiss it, but think about the numbers in the code. I always like to bring this up. Think about how round some of these numbers are. Three feet, you know, 36 inch high guard. So that's an oddly round three foot number. So many yeah. of the dimensions in the code are like very convenient numbers. And I think that in itself shows you they weren't scientifically derived. If we took yeah. the actual average uh, center of mass of the actual average spread of humans, we wouldn't come up with exactly three feet. You know, something yeah. I remember from engineering school is significant digits. The more significant digits behind the zero, the more important that number's accuracy is. Um, and so I like to kind of throw that kind of stuff out there. And I think that helps people realize that, you know, we don't have to fall on our sword on necessarily everything. Um, so I like the history for that. It really, there, I have some aha moments in some of my classes that that shock the students because when I finally go back to where it all started, it's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? That's what this code is about. Um, yeah. And it's like yeah. a rumor. You know how like when you're a kid, you've played that rumor game or whatever, where you whisper something. Yeah. Code is kind of that way. If you if we don't always connect ourselves to the to the history and to the why, you'll start to get these codes that just evolve over time by by people's like most recent thinking they understand it but what we we evolve it and then you you go back and you realize man we're so far from what the intent actually was um so i i love it for that reason yeah i have to do a, a quick plug for the, the build cast because uh, another uh kind of building historian i talked with uh, named bill rose who also wrote a, a great book called moisture and buildings um, I'll put a, a link to the, the build cast with him and people can go uh, check him out because uh, he's done some pretty amazing kind of historic um, understandings of, for example, uh, crawl spaces, how, how, we, how we moved uh, into uh, putting vapor retarders in our homes basically came from ventilated crawl spaces and the moisture movement from the soil into the house and, and whatnot. 
Yeah, it used to be um, 50 pound rolled roofing was the vapor retarder yeah. back in that day. Yeah, yeah. Before um, so we I hear this phrase um, all the time and it really grates on my soul <laughs> um, that the the code and, and specifically I think people think of it from the energy code perspective uh, is the legally legally worst house that you're allowed to build. Um, and I was wondering what your perspective on, on that is. Oh, I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I hear it all the time. I do a lot of outreach on social media. I'm very active on TikTok, for example, trying to get word to the, to the public. And I probably every two or three days, someone comments, well, you know, the code's the worst you can build and still be legal. Um, yeah. You know, it, as insensitively as I can say it, it's just an ignorant statement. The folks yeah. that say that truly are just repeating, they're just mouthpieces. They're just repeating what they heard. It's a way to lift yourself up by putting others down. A lot of contractors do that. You know, it's a way that's like, I've got to be better than code. So let me put code down and then that's my way of lifting me up. And unfortunately, those are folks that just really don't understand code at all. Um, so that's one of my first opinions on it. That's just like my outright statement. Now, yeah. what do I like to back that up with? Well, in emotionally, just as a person, as a human, trying to struggle and make it in this country and as a family, I, I kind of get personally insulted by that statement because it's so arrogant. I, I, I like to look at it this way and say, what if, what if a, your friend came up to you and was like, dude, I finally got my first brand new car. You know, like I, I haven't driven a brand new car since I was a stupid 20 year old and leased a truck that was so dumb, you know, and someone's like, I got a brand new car. I'm so excited. I never had a brand new car in my life. It's got only like 57 miles on it. It's a Ford Focus. I don't know. Or, you know, it's a budget car. Yeah. And the response would be, oh, you know, that's the worst car that the federal government will allow to be manufactured and still be legal. It's yeah. like, what kind of a-hole would you have to be to say that yeah. to someone? You know, and so yeah. think about the family that has like kids that are sharing a bedroom. That's me. My boys shared a bedroom for a long time until I could finish the basement and cut in an emergency escape and rescue opening and get that extra bedroom. And uh, yeah, I, my basement is a bare minimum code basement. And you know what? It's my home. And it gave my daughter yeah. a room and my son's got to have their own room or the family that's got their barbecue in the grass. And all their dream would be would be to have a minimum code deck. Well, good for them. Why don't we pat yeah. them on the back and smile for them? Right. And so that is my those are my thoughts with it. I really want to see the end to that comment. Um, the other thing I like to say with that is, like I said, with the headers, got 10 different ways to build a header can you tell me which is the worst one yeah you can't it's because you don't know code right like you don't even know which is the worst to even say it's the worst when the code gives you so many choices which one's the worst and then the final thing i will say on that one is here's the way that's saying because there is truth to that statement i guess right it's if you're building the bare minute, it is, you know, anything below that would not be allowed. But here's the correct way you make that statement. Government code is the worst you can build and still be legal, not code. Because that's what people need to realize out there is there's government code and there's model code. I'll just take Colorado as an example. We have jurisdictions with zero building code. 
So I guess the worst you can build and still be legal is anything. But you could go to Denver and Denver's going to be on the 21 code. So now the worst you can build and still be legal in Denver is the most modern code. But we have every code in in Colorado. We have jurisdictions on every I code every three years from 2000 to 21. So if you're building in some jurisdiction that's adopted the 06 code and we're here in 2023. And if you're building to that 06 code as a professional construction worker in America and you're building to that government code then I would, I, I have to, I don't like the phrase, but true, it's true. You would be building to the least, but you're not actually building to the model code. That's the 2021. So yeah. that's one of the things I try well, to do to get the professionals to realize, learn the latest code and then simply satisfy whatever the government requires in whatever like place you happen to be working. Yeah. I like to say also that Minimum doesn't mean bad. It yeah. just means the least, in essence, the least that you have to do. But as, as you mentioned before, we develop these codes through this consensus building process. So through a national consensus process, we're saying this is the least, the the minimum what you have to do to build a good house, a house that will be structurally sound in almost every situation maybe other than a, a category five tornado or something like yeah, that. And you know what 20 years from now maybe the codes will protect against that because it's all about yeah. society's expectations yeah. right like we could go back in the code 50 years and the code is different because society had different expectations of what what they would accept what the least we would accept that's why i like the car analogy you know my you, you can go back in time and you, and cars don't have airbags um and people back in that day people didn't care like it was like whatever right. i don't need an airbag it's gonna be more expensive etc but then the prices of that comes down it becomes more mainstream and then now the federal government you know requires airbags and then the next thing yeah. was like backup cameras right yeah. um but it doesn't mean that what you I, had i'm before, older than you so I'm older than you, so uh, when I started riding in cards, there were no seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And so, you know, it's really, what is minimum really mean? Well, that's an ever-changing and ever-moving target. And then, like I say, yeah. it's different, like Colorado, for example. Some rural jurisdictions are like, hey, we, we're good. You know, we don't need to have a, a more modern code. And yeah. then other, other, other places, like maybe Denver, you know, more urban areas, a little more progressive. It's like, no, we have different expectations for our community here. And so yeah. their minimum can be higher. But what it's based on is what what are the people in that community? What are they willing to accept? What do they want? Yeah, yeah. That's how it's supposed I find to be. That, do you find that the, that minimum argument is happening primarily in the energy codes? Or are you seeing it in the IRC as well? Uh, because I I wonder it seems like the energy codes get um complained about way more than any other code that that i see out there uh, but also i think part of the the issue with this notion of minimum being bad uh again comes kind of to your notion of the i codes or the model codes versus what's actually adopted and that when they adopt when different jurisdictions adopt the code, they amend it. And I don't 
I don't know a better way of saying it. They enforce it, um, but not not to the true intent of the code uh, there. So the code ends up uh, getting a bad rap, I think, in a lot of ways, just because of that process uh, there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, one thing I just can't stress enough for the public to understand is there's government code and there's model code. Model yeah. code is like a lobbyist. Model yeah. code is like a lobbyist, It's but it's not a lobbyist. It's a collection of everybody who wanted to be a lobbyist, you know, because anyone can be involved in developing the model code. Yeah. So you have this process of lobbyists, let's say, creating the model code, and then the model code is recommended to governments to say, hey, yeah. you know, all these people, we've all come together from all walks of the U.S. and all backgrounds and experiences, and we've hashed it out and fought it out and argued it out and modified proposals, and we've come up with this package, and this is what we think is the best recommendation to governments across yeah. the United States. Would now, we be that's better? But those Would governments, be... they I'm have sorry. the right and they, they have the authority, they have the obligation to serve their people in the way their people want to be served. So they look at the recommendation and then they can say, okay, what do we want to take on from this recommendation as the minimum here in our community? Um, and so- but would they be better off if they didn't amend it? If they just accepted the model code? Uh, I can't speak for those communities. See, I, I'm a big believer. I love the United States and our division of government. I love, and and I hope no one listening is going to paint some political box for this because I don't I don't paint I don't put myself in political boxes. I don't care about your boxes. I I believe that we are a diverse nation of tons of different people from all over the world. That's where the melting pot of the of the earth. And we need to respect that. And our whole system of governance was designed to allow us to be different. The federal government being at the top level, theoretically not meant to be a large government. And again, that's where you get into political differences, but the federal government hitting those high level subjects that are like, all Americans are gonna do this. High level, big ticket stuff. State government, we get 50 different ways to be diverse now. 50 different ways yeah. to be individual Americans and represent our liberties. And then in each one of those 50 states, they get to choose. Do we want to have a statewide code? Most states, even if they have a statewide code, they still allow the local jurisdictions to further amend it. So now in each of those 50 boxes of diversity, you get however many more opportunities for diversity. And, there, and then finally, you get to your local government the closest that we the people can be to our governance. And that I do think is where the, the creation of the community you live in should be governed. Because again, go to a little rural town like Guffey out in Colorado, a little rural town yeah. and, and chill around Guffey for a little bit and then go to downtown Denver. The people are different. They don't want yeah. the same governance. They don't want the same thing. And it doesn't make one right and one wrong it makes us different and I support that difference. Yeah. So, so that would be my long-winded answer of why I would say, no, I, I wouldn't feel like I have any business telling some town in Kansas what they should adopt as their code. If they don't like the deck code that me and others have created, I wanna hear about it. I wanna know why. I wanna know why yeah. we failed 
to attract them. And then that should matter and should go back into the process. That's I'm getting long-winded on this, but the last thing I'll say for it, pass it back to you is, I feel like that's one thing that's missing in the code, the people involved in code development. You get together with others, you collaborate to come up with this great recommendation for government. If government doesn't want it, then you need to go back to the drawing board because you're not above the government. You're not better than yeah. them. The government's not wrong because they, they amended the code you recommended. You That should be a sign to us. That should be them communicating back to us to say, well, yeah, we really don't like your recommendation. Here's some of our other opinions on it. Um, yeah. And that's really how it should work. The code is not, the model code is not above government. You know, it's, again, I take the people and I say, learn, if you're a construction professional, learn the latest and greatest collaboration of knowledge that has been put together in the model code. That would make you the highest level professional. Now go satisfy the government for your client. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, and I think that goes back to your point earlier, especially from my perspective in the energy codes, that so much of the code development is happening by, in essence, paid lobbyists mm -hmm. uh, versus even the code officials themselves and or other other folks that are involved in it, that 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 feedback isn't really, really happening. No. Uh, well, the problem much, yeah. is the paid lobbyists and the folks, I don't care who you are, who's paying for it, uh, you know, because I'm not trying to demonize that. That's how it works. But your goal should be the end user, period. Yeah. And yeah. that's why it fails. So many people that lobbyists, if we want to put it that way, like paid people that have an agenda to represent their industry, if they're writing a proposal to benefit their industry and not benefit the end user, the American people, shame on you. Shame on you. That's unethical. Uh, and I'll and I'll say it outright, like that's not the point. I would expect the people speak and lead. We create new technologies, we create new ideas, new materials. We're the innovators. We are the human beings. The industry should see what us humans are desiring, inventing, wanting, our changes in lifestyle. And the industry should say, hey, I, we we represent whatever industry and look at what the Americans are doing in this industry. Look at what they're creating and they're wanting. Let's go take their voice and let's go collaborate in this book that then we're going to recommend to the governments that govern those very people. And yeah. that's where you get, that's where that's not happening. Yeah. So do you feel like the IRC is getting amended as much as um, the IECC, the energy code? Uh, in the local adoptions that you're involved with? Um, I'm trying to understand. So the IRC non-energy chapters? Yes. Are they getting, yes, they definitely get amended. Um, okay. You definitely, some like even like I can, just think back to my deck examples. Those are a lot of recipes I worked on. Uh, I happen to know like Colorado Springs, um, the regional, Pikes Peak Regional Building Department. They made some amendments to the deck stuff. Um, that, you know, that I look at and go, oh, okay, what did they not like about this? Um, and so, so I, you know, from that example, I can definitely see amendments made. Um, okay, so I was just curious. As, I was curious ultimately because I'm thinking that the consensus, there maybe there's something wrong with the consensus process that we've created 
because we're not getting broad enough consensus on these things if, if everything's getting um, amended so much. Yeah. But um, I think you're right, that feedback loop isn't happening well enough or there's, we need to think about the process of how we get that feedback loop back to the development Absolutely. Side. And, and yeah. I would say even the feedback loop simply from the building authorities that are now looking at the code recommendations, the model code recommendations, looking at them to say, is this appropriate for our community? And then them being out there in the community, in, in their people's backyards and homes and trying to administer these codes, that feedback loop happens to some degree in that a lot of building authorities do get involved in code development. I mean, those are our folks that don't have an interest in how it turns out. They're just going, my people don't want this. This is not good, or, or we need to allow something else for them. But the real feedback loop is missing is was the mission I've been on, is the actual public, the actual construction workers, the actual people even. What do they want? And they don't realize that they even have a say in this. So much yeah. of my education that I do to the public, I, I've come to realize a lot of them don't even realize how the system of building codes work. They, a lot of them think that there is a federal code. They think it's some committee appointed by the president's cabinet of these like high level yeah. physicists that, that come up with. They don't even realize that they themselves could write a proposal. So to me, the feedback loop that would be the most important and the most lacking is from the actual end user of the code and the end user being the homeowner, the one that's the code is applied to, the one that has to pay for the additional costs of this extra added safety or energy efficiency or whatever it may be. Um, we just don't get enough of their feedback into the loop. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's perfect. I think that's a, a great spot to, to end our, our time together because uh, I don't want to uh, overreach my uh, my request of your time, I guess. <laughs> well, clearly, I don't have a problem talking. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thanks so much for, for joining us on the BuildCast. I really appreciate it. Uh, your wealth of information. Uh, everyone can check out uh, Glenn's articles in Fine Home Building and Journal of Light Construction and uh, check out the show notes for other ways to, to learn more about Building Code College. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.